all the critic can do is judge an idea. But if we can teach the critic, instead of judging ideas as not good, to just say, this is what interests me, then I, the thing that I say and that I, I believe is that what interests you will lead you to your truth. If you're a professional singer, want to know how to turn singing into a career, or simply love to hear stories from singers on the road, then The Working Singer is the podcast for you. I chat with pro singers about how they make a creative living in the music business, lending their talent to stars like Enrique Iglesias, The Killers, Elvis Costello, and more. They share life lessons, business advice, and how they make a living when they're off the road. We'll also discuss vocal health, technique, performance, coaching, and pretty much all things vocal. Elevate your approach to your singing career, get enlightened about what the pros do, and be inspired with new ideas that you can make your own. My name is Jamila Ford, and this is the Working Singer Podcast. Welcome, everybody. I am so excited that you are here. Thank you for joining me again this week. Stuff has been not so cuckoo. So I appreciate, you know, you just taking the time. I know that this is something different from what, uh, you know, we have to think about all week. So I appreciate you taking the time to listen and to check in. And I'm hoping that everything is value filled for you and that it is applicable even during these times. And that is why I wanted to talk to my guest today, Rob Seals. He is the founder, along with his wonderful wife, Ashley, of the Songwriting School of Los Angeles here in Burbank. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this conversation. And I know usually at the top of the show, I will go on and on about what I've been doing. But I just want to get to the interview because I'm excited for you guys to hear what Rob has to say. So here is a quick bio and then we're going to get into it. Um, Rob Seals is a songwriter, producer, and educator based in Los Angeles, the son of an architect father and social worker mother. He grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in a household that championed creativity and modeled service. Songs he has written or produced have appeared on TV shows like Pretty Little Liars, Ghost Whisperer, Men in Trees, Brothers and Sisters, The Hills, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, Dreamland, Fox Sports, and many others in feature and documentary films and on KCRW. He's the proud father of two young daughters and with his talented wife, Ashley, founded the Songwriting School of Los Angeles. The Songwriting School is the only full-time non-degree school of its kind devoted to the artistry and industry of songwriting. Instructors and distinguished guest lecturers have included number one writers, Grammy winners and nominees, rock and roll and songwriters, Hall of Fame inductees, and inspiring industry thought leaders. Students have ranged from those writing their first songs to multiple Grammy-nominated songwriters, from those playing their first open mics to multiple Grammy-winning artists, from billboard-charting artists to those writing the first songs they truly believed in. The Songwriting School seeks to inspire, instruct, and empower people of all ages to create work that matters. The school opened its doors in 2009 at its Burbank location and offers a professional recording studio as well as classes, lessons, and workshops year-round on campus and online at thesongwritingschool.com. During the pandemic, all classes are offered online in a fully interactive format. 
wonderful. I've taken so many great classes at this school, and I am so excited for you guys to hear from Rob. He is such a wonderful human being, so warm, so insightful, so present. And I just felt like he was one of the best people to hear from right now. So without further ado, Rob Seals. Rob Seals, I'm so excited that you're here. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I, I'm I'm thrilled to be connected and in conversation with your magnificent voice. Ah, thank you. You too. I'm just excited that we could finally do this. So it's awesome. Um, so uh, you know, we're going to talk about you, your songwriting journey. I know that um, you have done a lot, and I know that there are a lot of singers out there who mainly sing, and, and I've met so many who don't actually write songs. And I thought that you were the perfect person for them to hear from because I've, you know, I've taken several classes at your school and I was very impressed with how you um, were able to take a beginning songwriter, somebody who's never written anything and pull a story out of them. And I thought it was very encouraging to uh, witness and, um, and, you know, just see that everybody has a story to tell and they've got their own unique uh, interesting way of telling it. So um, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's, that's lovely and gracious. You know, you're amazing. But I want to start off, you know, really at the beginning. Like, where are you from and where did you grow up? Yeah, I I am originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My, uh, it's funny, my parents had this, whatever your cliches uh, and stereotypical imaginations of the American South might be, I'm going to confirm a lot of them. <laughs> my, the first house that, that my parents brought me home to from the hospital was a log cabin, for real, <laughs> straddling the border, uh, the state line between Tennessee and Georgia in a little community called Lookout Mountain. And my dad was an architect and my mom was a freelance graphic designer and I was an only child. And so I, I grew up in uh, a really lovely neighborhood that had some freedoms to it that I can't imagine my own daughters having now in terms of like, you know, getting up in the morning and having breakfast and getting on your bike and waving goodbye and, you know, in the summer and not seeing your parents until the sun was coming down and just having, you know, free reign to do the things uh, that kids would do. But it was a, it was a great childhood, um, a great place to, to kind of grow and, and be a creative person. And I was in a house of creative people, but neither of them was a music person. My dad, again, an architect, my mom, a designer. So they're visual, they're incredibly talented visually. And I love to draw in the beginning too, but at some point I started to figure out that music was going to be my language to art articulate myself. Uh, and, you know, I, I can get into all that, but that, that was where, that was where I grew up. And my mom still lives in the Chattanooga area. And I, I love to go back there. I'm, I'm very proud of that town. It's sort of, uh, it, it went through the, the kind of urban decay that, uh, so often happens when a city forgets why it formed and where it formed. And, and there, my dad, before he passed away, was a big part of the urban renewal of the, the city and helping Chattanooga remember what made it really special. So when you, when you, it's, it's considered one of America's great small cities now. And, and I think that's a, a, a lovely kind of legacy that uh, he left. And it's something that makes it really special, not just to see my mom, but to go, you know, go back home. 
Was there music in the house when you were growing up? Yes. My parents had a phenomenal taste in music, which meant, of course, that I did not. I had to like forswear it off all the good music they listened to. <laughs> but one of the things that I admire, it's, it's interesting in these kind of conversations where you get a moment to think back, you know, through the, through the lens of the kid you were and then through the lens of the person you are now. And but there was no such thing as genre in the house. They just, they just listened to magnificent music. So like they were kind of hippies. So we had all the kind of Beatles and, and uh, that kind of thing, earth, wind and fire, but then a lot of classical music. And then a lot of jazz, Chet Baker, and um, and just just basically all vinyl, always played too loud for my little kid's sensitive ears, mm. you know. And there were only two types of music, loud and louder, as far as I was concerned as a kid. But just <laughs> I, I, I grew up in that house where they loved music, but because they weren't music people, they were able to appreciate it in the same way that I might go into a museum. They they could just be moved by it or enjoy it, but not interface with it on those kinds of of ways. And my little public elementary school in Walker County, Georgia, um, again on the Tennessee Georgia straight line, state line, if you're trying to keep that straight, uh, didn't have a music program. And then a family moved to town who were very musical and they're like, well, this is ridiculous. We got to start a music program. And so my parents dragged me to the cafeteria on a rainy Tuesday night and said, you've got to pick out one of these orchestra instruments and you get to learn it and, and uh, be a part of this you know, fledgling little little school orchestra. And so I, I picked out the trumpet as my first instrument. And, you know, I kind of begrudgingly went as was so often the case where my parents really knew what was going to be great for me. And so because they knew, I sort of felt like I had to know otherwise. Mm. But I'm so grateful. That began my, my journey with music. And um, I, I started playing the trumpet when I was about nine or 10. And the first time a neighbor dragged me to a rock concert was really that kind of religious moment where I knew that my relationship with music wasn't just a casual thing. It wasn't just one of the activities that you did after school. This was going to be a, a lifelong thing. And so I started writing songs privately when I was about 10. And I had no, you know, nowadays a 10 year old is going to think, yeah, I'll get my YouTube channel and I'll, I'll get distribution and, you know, but I had no uh, sense that this was going to be anything other than something I needed to do. The, the songs were just kind of rising in me and coming out of me, and I started writing them. And, what and, were you uh, writing about? Right? The profound concerns of the 10-year-old. You know, I mean, it, it's funny. My, my earliest songs were more about exploring the form than really what I needed to say, which is funny when I think about that. But the very earliest ones were just sort of like, I've heard things be catchy and I want to be able to sing something that's catchy. But then, mm -hmm. then what I started doing was um, a lot of times I would read something and it would, it would kind of move me to, to write about it. And I, I remember like when I was like 10 or 11 and read this biography of a, of a, a young man who passed too early. Uh, and the title was uh, taken from a, a John Donne poem, Death Be Not Proud. And I wrote a song, Death Be Not Proud. And, you know, <laughs> and so, um, and it's kind of funny and pretentious when you think about that. But really what I was doing was songs were these very private vessels to help me understand the world and understand my place in the world and to sort of, um, like lenses to use that analogy again, to look more deeply into what was going on and what could be possible. And, and uh, I, again, I never imagined anybody was going to hear these. They were just things I needed to do in the beginning. Mm. When did you start playing out as a uh, musician? 
rock and roll. Well, so my high school had this thing called Ragtails, which is an acronym that stood for the Red and Gray Talent and International Lampoon Show, which is a, a, a clumsy way of saying it was like skit and band night, basically. And I remember going with a friend in maybe eighth grade and seeing these kids that we knew on stage making incredible noise, playing guitars. And then that was the moment at, at, at which I realized the trumpet was not going to be my vessel. I was not going to be Miles Davis. The guitar just whoa, spoke. And so we made like a pinky swear that night, like we're going to learn guitar. And his brother had a classical guitar in the house. And so we were like, you know, hacking away on it and trying to learn. But that was the beginning. And his name is Steve Sari. And Steve Sari and I played guitar enough that we found a drummer. And then it was the three of us. And I'll never forget our first rehearsal. We, we had like, there was this old 80s song by a band called Tommy Two Tone, uh, 8675309 Jenny. Do you know that at all? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And so all we knew was there was like, there were two parts. There was the chord part and there was this little arpeggiated part. And we probably played it for like an hour and a half solid. <laughs> much to the chagrin of the whole neighborhood but i'll just never forget that feeling it, that was that was the most electric feeling i have mm. ever experienced and we were a very very bad metal band for a while until we weren't and that was very fun and and uh and you know music went from there but yeah by the time i was in, a senior in high school we were playing dances and um like the community center over a thousand kids at the little community center and you know, we were paid gigs and it was really very exciting and really really fun and and just a just a, a total you know a total dream to get mm. to play guitar in front of people and we we mainly played cover songs but i uh sort of backed into being the songwriter you know i've been privately writing the whole time and then uh, at one point we, were, we had an opportunity to go into the studio and the idea was to cut two covers and, a, and an original. We didn't really have an original that we were excited about. And everybody sort of like does the, you know, dudes do the nose game. Do you know that? Or like the last finger on the nose is it? No. <laughs> and uh, like, so yeah, I, I was last finger on the nose to write the song. But of course, that was like the greatest, secretly, that was like the great opportunity. Like, this is what I've been wanting to do. Hmm. So anyway, I, I I feel like my love affair with music was one that was probably set up by my parents and the, the trumpet was kind of the arranged marriage, but the, the, the guitar, that, that's the love of my life. Uh, I, and, and at the risk of sounding like a bad after school special, I, I, you know, truly the guitar saved my life when I was a, a sort of a rudderless vessel around my sophomore year of high school uh, when there's so many ways a life can turn the guitar and music and writing songs was absolutely the way i kind of found my way and I, I will always be grateful to it mm. so what um what happened when you graduated from high school <laughs> um <laughs> so i went to college i went to the university of virginia and yeah. I just decided that I wasn't going to drag electric guitars and amps to college because I, I didn't want to out myself as a guitar player right away because I didn't want to end up in a band with whoever was on my hall who played drums or whatever. I, re I really wanted to be selective about people that I played with. So I just brought an acoustic guitar to college and I didn't really know acoustic music so much because I've been playing kind of rock music. And so that 
got me more excited about some of the sort of what you what we might call singer songwriters uh, you know both the ones who had been around for a while the james taylors of the world and and just other kinds of music than i had been listening to again my parents great taste my tastes were very limited you know very metal <laughs> based so so my musical education was was expanding and really what i was doing is i was just kind of expanding back out to all the good music that they started me with like now suddenly i could because i was a music maker i could appreciate good music in any genre any, anything that felt honest and and could move you you know so that was very exciting. So then I, around my uh, second sophomore year of college, I met a guy named Ellis Butler who also played guitar and had a beautiful voice. And, you know, this is a podcast about singers and I am not a fantastic singer myself. <laughs> and uh, he, he is a quite a good singer and but our voices worked really well together. And so we did a lot of close harmony stuff and that Seals and Butler were a duo and we played those last couple of years of college and did really well for ourselves. And, played up and down the, the Mid-Atlantic and then added a rhythm section eventually and, and uh, made, made a CD back when that was a thing that you, you did. And, uh, and that was, you know, that was a, a lot of fun. And, and after college, um, Ellis went to Harvard Law and got his, his law degree. So he had his day job pretty, pretty yeah. hardwired. And I took a job at a prep school in the Washington DC area. Uh, I was the head track and cross country coach and I taught literature and, and writing and, and uh, and meanwhile, we would play music on the on the weekends and in the summers. And, and uh, yeah, it was, it was, again, more not so dissimilar from the little uh, high school or on stage in terms of like, I can't believe I get to do this. I, I can't believe somebody's going to pay me to make music tonight. This is. Uh, mm. cool. yeah. Wait, what were you majoring in? Did you? I was an English major. I'm okay. I was um, pursuing literature and writing and that was important to me and I took a lot of poetry and writing classes in, in, at UVA and mm -hmm. and when I my first job you know as a 22 year old teaching English at this old kind of historic prep school Episcopal High School in Alexandria Virginia like in the in the shadow of DC um, I I looked about 15 I was always being mistaken for a freshman. And I was like, that's Mr. Seals to you. <laughs> uh, but I was really blessed. I, I like to think of those years as my first graduate school because the, the teachers who were there were so phenomenal and really gracious to me. And I learned so much about uh, literature that, that I, I hadn't entirely learned in college as I got to interact with my, my colleagues who were so much more experienced and better read than I was. And, and, but one of the things that was really powerful for me was I, I realized that my English students were becoming much better critical writers when I had them do a poetry unit and made them write poems. Mm -hmm. And we did all this work studying the styles of other poets and I would ask them to imitate and imitate. And then by the end, it would be about your style and your voice. And when we would emerge from that unit and then we'd get to all the kind of critical essays of the spring, all of a sudden, you know, the, the typical high schooler has got this, oh, I'm like to tell you about the thing. You know, that's like their writing voice. It's just this, this lifeless impersonation of what a scholarly work is supposed to be. And then after all that poetry, there was this vibrancy that started to come through. It's like their, their personalities were coming through. A love of language was coming through, even if they were writing an essay on, on whatever topic. And 
a light went off for me that about how it is that you access something. And you were talking before about helping people who hadn't been songwriters, you know, write their first songs and then hopefully mm-hmm. write songs that really align their voice as a singer with their voice as a, as a person, their mm-hmm. voice as a writer. And I, I started tapping into something at that time that if you, if you could teach creative process in a way that was entirely aligned with critical thinking, you are cultivating a really creative critical thinker who's going to be self-expressive in all kinds of potent ways. And so I'd like to think that that was the seeds for what would become a lot of the work that I would end up doing with songwriters. But at the time, I wasn't thinking about teaching people to write songs. It was more about helping them find their voice as people, as writers. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, like I said at the beginning, it's like something that uh, um, I appreciated the most about you was, I think when I took the Roots class, actually it was the, I think it was the Roots Intensive, the two week mm-hmm. intensive songwriting yeah. uh, course. And I think the thing that I appreciated and I've taken with me, and as I say, as I say it now, I think I need to incorporate this in pretty much everything that I do, but uh, that melding of, you know, critic and creative is I think so important. I think one of the biggest lessons I took from your class was that, you know, the critic has a place, um, but not at the beginning, not up front, you know, let the creative do its thing, then bring the critic in. I, can you talk about that? Because I, I think that is so interesting. And, and, and am I quoting you right? <laughs> am I saying well, it right? Thank you for yeah. that. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. And I'm certainly not the first to, to talk about that. And some of your listeners are probably familiar with Julia Cameron, who wrote this wonderful book, The Artist's Way. And that's a fantastic book. And it's a book that I read, and it was really valuable to me. And with with great uh, admiration and, and respect for her, the, the one place that I always differed, when she would talk about what she called the artist and, and the critic, the artist, the creator, the critic, the judge, that the the critic for her is that voice that keeps us down that would put on a tape loop that damning thing about us. You know, the, you had a choir teacher when you were, you know, 11 who said, uh, you know, don't sing through your nose or whatever. And that's the voice that rings in your ears every time you draw breath to sing and it keeps you from your power as a singer or whatever. So I, I, I know that that is an experience that many of us have, but to me, what, the critic is, 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 is something distinct from that. I think the critic is that part of us that has experienced expertise in the world and may have been a part of accomplishing that expertise herself. And so in other words, all the, think of all the things you're really good at in your life. You worked at them and you've gotten to a place where you're good. And so that, that judge then is going to judge a brand new first time songwriter's first song idea against how well you do all these other things. And so what I like to imagine is that if, if Julia Cameron's idea is that we got to vilify that thing, we got to, you know, like shut it down, shut it out, shout it out or whatever. But I feel like if you respond to a bully with bullying, you're just perpetuating something that's that's negative. But if you imagine that the reason the critic behaves that way is that secretly he or she is terrified of the incredible things that you might accomplish or do, because those things are beyond the familiar of where we sit right now. 
And the critic wants most of all to keep us safe and therefore would lock us down and keep us fixed where we are. But as creative people, we know that it's where we want to go. That's, that's the objective. And so what I imagine is that the artist and critic are fundamentally co-writers and that each has a job. And like you say, the artist needs to come first with the idea. All an artist can do is generate ideas. He or she just can't know if they're interesting, hip, and your genre any good, going to sell, cheesy, whatever. All the critic can do is judge an idea. But if we can teach the critic, instead of judging ideas as not good, to just say, this is what interests me, this is what interests me, then the thing that I say and that I, I believe is that what interests you will lead you to your truth. And so if you get really good at dialing in what interests you, it's like the divining rod starts snapping in the direction that you should head. And so we sort of begin there in that exercise that you're talking about with the idea that if we can get the critic out of the way for a little while and just teach it how to spot the interesting things, the artist is going to get busy generating all kinds of stuff. Some of it will be interesting, some of it won't. Mm -hmm. and, and the critic just gets practice spotting the things that interest us. Then we hand them tools to start to shape it, and then it becomes the song lyrically, melodically, structurally. Et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, that, that's, I mean, that's kind of the overview of that. And, and, and I, I come to that with great humility because my critic is super aggressive with me <laughs> and uh, can be very hard on me. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm very critical of myself. But when I can remind myself that if the critic can just be diagnostic, in other words, instead of saying that's bad to say, um, that's sitting on the same note in this section as the next section. How could we create contrast there? Then suddenly that's constructive. And, and, and so we kind of begin there with that kind of language. And if we internalize it enough, and then as you know, in the class, we, we get to some co-writing. And when we practice that with other people, you know, we could be on our best behavior for one another, and then we can be brutal to ourselves. Mm -hmm. But if you get that practice with another human, you just might take it back to your, to your own work. And, and eventually, yeah, I think just something remarkable happens because we're, we're wired to do amazing things. We're, we're wired to look at situations and respond with something unique. All you have to do is, is examine what's happening in this pandemic and a world limited to these little boxes on, on Zoom and look at the, the ways that people are responding with their creativity. You know, that, that's yeah. our fundamental state, to respond to, respond to the vacuum with, with life, to respond to, to the force that would push against with something that would push it forward. Hmm. Yeah. God. So you were teaching English I was. and <laughs> you're teaching English. Uh, what, uh, how did you then become a songwriter? Also, uh, I don't want to miss that you had gotten an MFA in poetry. I did. How did that also come about? Yeah. So I was in the, in the DC area in my twenties and Seals and Butler, this duo, we were playing a good bit of the year and we made a record that what an amazing education. So we were in the DC area in the nineties at a time when a lot of amazing music was happening. And we had befriended at a club called Dylan's cafe in Georgetown, DC, a duo who went by the handle of their amazingly long and magnificent last names, Derry Berry and Alasia. And Doug Derryberry, who's truly one of the most gifted musical people I've ever been around and played for many, many years in Bruce Hornsby's band, The Noisemakers, 
and his partner, John Alasia. And, and they, in addition to being a musical duo, were a recording and producing duo. And so they had a house in Northern Virginia and in their basement, they had a studio. It began as like half inch analog tape. And then when the digital revolution began, they moved into uh, these things called uh, 16-bit blackface ADATs, which were basically like VHS tapes, but it was digital and, and DAT machines and, and on their way to, to Pro Tools. But in this little stretch in the 90s, in their house, in the basement, you would find uh, Ben Folds, Edwin McCain, Vertical Horizon, a band called Everything that had a, a number one. Um, just all these amazing acts, uh, Keller Williams, Pat McGee, going in and out of that place um, making music. And we were just so lucky to get to make a record then and there because that was that was my first real education in a studio. I'd been in a studio in my high school band, but to actually be a part of the the you know, the making of a record with with guys at that at that skill level who weren't much older than us, but that had been you know making really really great records. That was a, a magnificent education. I'm so grateful for, and I still draw upon when I'm producing. I still draw upon so many of the things that I learned being in in the other chair you know being on the other side of the glass Except there wasn't even glass because it was just i mean you talk about a home studio you know i remember um carter beaufort is the longtime drummer for the dave matthews band coming in and playing drums on this vertical horizon project and basically you know imagine like a typical uh, uh, american kind of suburban home with like a, a rec room on in the basement and there's no windows, there's no lighting. And so Carter's in there playing no line of sight and the control room is on the other side of the door and we're all monitoring through headphones and the monitors. And, you know, it, it, so it felt like kids in a fort. It felt like um, kids making stuff. And yet, you know, these end up being some of the really significant records of, of the nineties that, that grew there. Um, John would do the first two Dave Matthews record bands before uh, they signed to RCA Records. And, um, but he continues to do things with Dave Matthews, including this last record. John was one of the producers on that. So anyway, these are just like amazing people. But all we knew was this was where we went to make music. And it was just mm -hmm. always fun to, you know, who's going to be coming out of the house when you're going in? And that was a, a big part of that. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. We, there for a long time. And then my time as a teacher was so magnificent but it felt like it had run its course for me in terms of what I wanted to do there. That, that wonderful school, I feel so grateful to the kids I got to coach and teach and my, my girls track teams hung back to back to back championship banners in the gym, which is something I'm probably as proud of as anything I've been a part of because of the character of who they are and, and, and were and became and in all that time. Oh, you coached track? I don't think I did I that. did, yeah. I was, a, oh. I was a distance runner myself and, and that was yeah. a great passion for me and and i i think that that for for me working with songwriters has always been more about coaching than teaching really mm. uh, which i i can get more into that but uh but coaching has always been something that that's been really dear to me so anyway this is the longest clumsiest answer ever but <laughs> that kind of ran its course for me and and um the that was a very privileged community uh, this prep school. And there was a part of me that just was troubled with the idea that I'm going to spend my life and my energies on, on one group of people who maybe already have a lot of opportunities and resources. And mm -hmm. I, I was feeling like there were other things I was meant to do. And so I went to grad school, I got an MFA in poetry 
And while I was in grad school, I started dreaming up a curriculum that I could take across the country as sort of an artist in residence. And so I started doing this at colleges and high schools and even younger, middle school, et cetera. Uh, and it would basically be like creative process workshops. Sometimes it was about songwriting. Sometimes it's just about writing, creative process. And like I would perform and, and do workshops and classes and things like that. And I did it all across the country, you know, coast to coast and up and down the coasts and uh, basing out of North Carolina where I had gotten my my uh, MFA and and then doing a lot of my own music. And then I started doing a lot of sideman work, playing guitar for other people. And that was really exciting because I already had a sense, like I was never a great singer and I love to write, but I, I, I loved being with really expressive singers mm. who could do all the things that I heard in my head. And so my work as a sideman was putting me in that kind of proximity. And then that, that led to starting to get to produce and work on records. But ultimately what I couldn't know was I was really headed towards co-writing with great singers because that's, that's <laughs> the real joy as far as I'm concerned. Mm. So anyway, so yeah, I got an MFA in poetry and the difference between an MFA and an MBA, if any of you guys are considering it is uh, yeah. <laughs> one will make you money and one will not. But, um, but uh, what the MFA did for me was two really, really significant things. One, it wrecked my ability to write songs for a while because I had really gotten confident as a songwriter and I felt like I knew how to express myself. And the MFA, all that study being definitely the weakest writer in my class when I entered of, you know, just seven poets in my class. It was a really small workshop environment mm -hmm. and uh, just getting kind of beat up daily and realizing that everybody in there had always wanted to be a poet and always thought of themselves as a poet. I'd never thought of myself as a poet. I'd always thought of myself as a songwriter. So it was such a humbling education, but so good for me. And, and so then it raised my expectations for what words ought to do in any setting, especially a lyric. And so for a while I was lost as a songwriter and then gradually, gradually was able to assimilate the things that I learned and sort of my, my kind of 2.0 of my style or whatever started to manifest. But that, that sort of thing gives me real uh, um, humility when I work with someone and I can feel the growing pains that they're going through and they're you know, trying really hard to tackle a concept and it's not coming through them in ways they trust yet. And, and I remember that feeling. It just you know, it takes, a lot of, it takes a lot of swings to groove that swing. It takes a lot of repetition to get to the place where you start to trust it and it feels like you. And then all of a sudden one day out of your mouth tumbles that line and it's like, it was as, it, as if it were always there. It was as if it were always your voice, you know? And that's, that's when it gets exciting. Hmm. I was going to ask you, um, are, are songs poems and poems songs? Mm. My favorite definition of poetry was uh, Coleridge. Uh, poetry is the best words in the best order. And I love that because it doesn't mean the biggest words or the smartest words. The best words means the, you know, the words that move you, the words that serve the moment, the words that align the message and the messenger. And so I think at our best, lyrics use that poetic understanding, that approach. But what dis differentiates a lyric from a, a, a poem is that a, a poem isn't just the lyric, it's the track too what a poet has to do is build the track by how she writes the line. She, the lines are this long and she uses the punctuation and the line breaks and the capitalization 
and the typography on the page to get us to read the poem in a certain way. In other words, so that we can hear it the way she hears it. But when you write a lyric, you have to know that that's going to happen in musical time. And, you, and we have to leave space for the music to communicate and express. And so I, I think what a, what a songwriter has to learn to do is to take things away so that the space remains, so that in the space we get to feel the thing that the, that the, the line is trying to say. So they're, they're certainly related, but I think, I think songs are the highest art form because they take the very best of poetry and then they, you add music, which is beyond words. You know, at the place where words stop short, music can go. Music can get to the absolute, you know, abscesses and cracks and, and, and holes in us. It can reach us in our, our deepest places and immediately. It's such a phenomenal medium. And the idea that you could bring those two things together and they, they force a, a physical response, whether that's to dance or to sway or to pump a fist or to cry or, or whatever, I, I, I can't think of any medium that is as powerful as a song. And it, a song is the killer app. It's like in three minutes, you're transformed. How often have you pressed play on a song because you couldn't get out of bed to do whatever you had to do and three minutes later, you're like, okay, I got this. Or, or you know, we were talking about, about sorrow in the world right now. And, and sometimes when nobody understands you and maybe you don't understand, a song has got the key that will turn every tumbler in the lock to open you up and out it comes. You know, what an amazing thing that we get to do music, that we got, get to make those experiences for other people and participate them in ourselves. And sometimes you just have to sing somebody else's song to know you're not alone in this thing that you're feeling, you know? I, I, I've come to think that that's what a cover song is, most of all. I think in the beginning, cover songs were kind of like a way of saying, I'm with Bob Dylan or <laughs> I'm with Ed Sheeran. You know, it's sort of like, <laughs> listen to me, I'm with him. But I, I think in the end, it's a, an amazing way to understand mm. our humanity. Like, I'm not the only one that's felt this yeah. way. Or, or, or sat in awe and wonder or hope, you know, and, and to hear somebody put it maybe better than you could, but like you'd always wished you could. And, but you get to sing along and those words come out of your mouth in your voice. Ah, mm. that's good. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, how did you kind of develop a, your own process, I guess, for songwriting and then having sort of a successful co-write? Mm, yeah. Well, my, it's funny, the, those are so distinct things. I started writing, like I said, as a little kid, entirely privately, and then how I wrote would evolve. In the, in the beginning, those were always words I wrote on a page and I heard a melody in my head. And then when I started playing guitar, immediately the guitar was the sort of um, paddle in the water that I was gonna use to get me wherever. And so I, you know, I, I immediately then began writing for the guitar. Then sometimes I'll find I'll write something that starts as words and then we'll sit together and, and and compile it, but I trust songs where the words and the and the music arise from the same place, from the same moment, because I I like to think of music as this pre-verbal language that long before we can put our finger on it or name it, we feel it, 
And my feeling is if, if, if you can stay in that space long enough, words will come and they may not be the, the, the words you'll settle on. They may not be the best words in the best order yet, but they will be words. And then your craft gives you the facility to examine the truth of whatever came out and then those words and try to align them in the most potent way and strategy and structure. So, so for me, I was very much self-taught in all those ways. And then, like I said, studying poetry, it, it, that wasn't a, a, a crash course in songwriting, but it was very much a crash, crash course in, in the poetics of communication, but it forced me to reassemble privately and on my own. So then co-writing, I had never really authentically co-written much, and I moved to LA, and my dear friend, Matt Scannell, of a band I mentioned earlier called Vertical Horizon, they were coming off, they had a big number one and a multi-platinum record um, called Everything You Want, and that song had been everywhere and everything, and uh, they were in this sort of uh, lull period where their next record was done, but it hadn't come out yet because they had a beef with the record label, and his vocal coach had asked him to teach a, a class on co-writing, or just on songwriting, actually. And even though he's a really gifted teacher and he's a great communicator, he had never taught before. And he's like, hey, could I invite my buddy Rob to do it with me? And so when we started talking about what would a, a songwriting class be, we were like, why don't we just teach a class on collaboration? Because we're going to collaborate in the, in the creating of this class. And so we spent a few days together kind of hammering out what that would be. But really for me, and so he's thinking, oh, I'm leaning on Rob for all these tools and exercises and stuff like that. But for me, I'm like, I'm in the company of a number one writer who uh, has been co-writing a good bit. You know, at this point, after, after the success of, the, of that record, he had been going to Nashville a lot. He had been writing with Richard Marks and he'd been writing with a bunch of, of, of country artists like Rascal Flatts and people like that. And so it was a real education for me. And, and so it was really fun to sort of, um, and, and to me, that's what a co-write is, right? You bring what you have, you bring who you are, you open yourself to who the other person or, or people are, and then you try to find the strongest ideas and give them a fighting chance of making a difference. And so that's sort of how we approached coming up with the curriculum. We had a really fun time in the class, class wrote some really good songs. And then, um, and then now I'm like, all geeked up to start co-writing all over the place. So that's when I really started co-writing. And uh, so I really came to it late. And I, I, feel, I feel so grateful to have had a, a friend and a peer be so teacherly in, in, those, in those ways. And he didn't even know he was really teaching me that. He was just being himself. And I, I think that's the best teaching. You're, you're beginning in a place of love and uh, respect and affection for the other person and respect and affection for the task at hand. And out come these songs. And he he spoke with such reverence about what comes of a co-write that uh, it, it was really, it was really powerful. And, and I, I try to carry that forward. And so he was one of the people who suggested to me that this idea from improv comedy, yes, and ought to be at the heart of everything in a co-write. And that's something that I, you know, have brought to the songwriting school of Los Angeles and and have made sure that that spirit is at the heart of, of any kind of collaboration, mm -hmm. co-writer otherwise. What don't you want to bring to a collaboration? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, honestly, I think you don't want to bring your anxieties in a way that they need taking care of 
So in other words, you know, we're, we're all nervous. Any, anything that matters, we're nervous for. That, it's your body's way of saying, hey, this is important. <laughs> like, don't tune out. So that's fine, you know? And I can be, I can be nervous that maybe I won't be good enough or have enough or, or, or bring an idea that the other person is going to like. But if I bring that into the room, it's kind of like I, I, on some level, I need somebody to take care of me, you know, like I need somebody to validate me or something. And that will keep me from being present. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think you, you come with an enthusiasm. We're about to make mm-hmm. something. A song that doesn't exist is about mm-hmm. to. And it's going to be the unique product of the people in this room. And so one of the things I, I like to say in the Roots songwriting class that I, I came to figure out for myself and believe and therefore I, I try to share it with rooms is whatever you perceive to be your shortcomings or your limitations are invitations for somebody else to uniquely enter your creative space and contribute their thing. And when you sort of operate that way, then you, you quit apologizing for what you aren't. Well, I'm sorry, I don't really play guitar. Or, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not a singer or whatever, um, you know? And, and then you just come with an enthusiasm for who and what you are and who and what they are. And then let's see how that, that works together and and then you figure out if this is a good fit it still might not be a great fit that's okay you know has anybody ever been on a bad date yes no? <laughs> <laughs> is that a separate episode so. it's a couple separate episodes <laughs> yeah word <laughs> but yeah so anyway i would say you know what what i don't want to bring to the room is anything that keeps me from being present in the room and i i i like to say that your job in a co-write is to be the best listener in the room. And if you're the best listener in the room, you're in the business of handing the other person back their genius. And cause we're genius when we're talking about what we care about, you know, when we're just like, we're, like if, if you had gone on about what made you laugh about the bad date, we started in a conversation and then out of your mouth is going to come an amazing line because you're this clever, heartful person and there it's going to come out. And if, and if I'm being inattentive, I'll laugh and then we'll go back to writing the song at hand. But if I'm being the best listener in the room, I'm going to take that thing you said and I'm going to hand it right back to you. Look, this is your genius. Let's, this, is, this is a line. Let's write that song. You know what I mean? So I, I think with, when you proceed with that kind of presence, you put, you put everyone in the room in a, in a state where they feel the permission to be bold and the faith that something just might come of this that could be transformative, because it mm. often is. I love that. What led you to creating the songwriting school? Mm. Well, the songwriting school of Los Angeles was a product of a lot of things and a lot of experiences and then, as is often the case in my life, then the gentle, insistent prodding and thoughtful suggestion of my wife, Ashley, who is always emotionally wiser than me in, at every turn, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> That's why that co-write works, because we, we lean on her heavily in these ways. But basically, a, a couple of, of things. One, that we moved to LA in 2004, and we were really blessed to know a lot of really amazing creative people in town. And so we would go from one spot to the next, to the next. And we were just struck by like, this is so amazing. I can't believe everyone we meet is a positive, creative person who does amazing things, but it's all about 
driving everywhere. And why isn't there one place where if you just ran a flag up, people would think, oh, I belong there. And, you know, some would imagine, oh, yeah, that's a place I want to go to learn. And others would think that's a place I want to go to collaborate or to network. And others would think that might be a place where I want to teach. And then others still might think, I don't know that I want to teach, but I know that I have something to give. I want to find out what that is. Maybe I'll be a speaker or whatever, you know, the, that sort of thing. So we, we had this idea. And because I had had the opportunity to teach some songwriting classes out here, I, I had had the opportunity to kind of test the waters on, on some things and, and begin imagining what the, the school could be. And then, then it was informed by all these things that have been really important to me. My, my hero and the best man in my wedding, Ernest Mead, who founded the music library at the University of Virginia, passed away a few years ago at about 96. Mr. Mead was someone who uh, created an atmosphere of lifelong learning. Both he modeled it in himself and he promoted it in his house. And every time I would go to Charlottesville, Virginia, I would always stay with Mr. Mead. And I would always meet somebody new who hadn't been my era at school, but Mr. Mead was the ultimate facilitator. And in, in his long, slow Richmond drawl, you know, would, would oh, no, surely, <laughs> you know, he would do the introductions, there would be a meal. And I, I, I had this sense that community didn't have to be a big, place or it could be a big place but community is where authentic relationships begin and are maintained and so his example was a, a big part of that and then um and then having been a part of schools as a as a coach and a teacher and a facilitator and having felt what real spirit is <laughs> and how it unites us and how it can get us through hard times and how it can charge us to do work that we may not believe we're capable of, but we are. And so really the songwriting school was, was a product of, of both, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a place in LA that was like that? And how could I honor the people in my life who have inspired and, and taught me about being creative and being brave and, and, and fostering community? Mm. Yeah, and it's a, an amazing community. It's it is so, because you, people like you so are a part of it. I mean, Aww. well, it's a, it's entirely true, and and I I think that um, so many people come for so many different reasons, but I I think the the through line, if I if I had to identify one, is that we're we're all we're all seeking connection. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's to our purpose. Sometimes it's to our voice whether as singers or writers or connecting the writerly voice and the singerly voice. Sometimes it's to our material, sometimes it's to another person, but I think it's all to something that matters. And I think when you, when you have a, a, a different backgrounds, different experience level, different genres, but a shared interest in doing something that matters. And that's yeah. a, that's a good recipe, <laughs> you know, for something powerful to happen. Um, talk about some of the, I guess, most popular classes there mm. at the school. There's so many amazing offerings. Well, thank you. I, you know, the Sarney School is sort of based on, on the, because we're not a, a two or a four-year degree school. And so everything kind of begins with what would be of value and how best to do it and who best to do it. So mm. we've, we've had, uh, the analogy I like to make for people is that we're more like your favorite restaurant than a college 
in that there are some staples on the menu and then some classes are kind of like chef specials that don't happen all the time. Like you, you got to work with the great Paulette McWilliams, for instance, and you interviewed her on your show. And I heard that interview. It was a wonderful conversation you all had. And so Paulette, you know, is one of these storied people who's sung with, you know, name your, your album collection of favorites yeah. and Paulette's voices <laughs> yeah. on those records or on those tours. And, and so people like, you know, people like that. And uh, so there've been so many classes over the years that I've just loved that I've gotten to be in the room for some of and, and been a part of. And then there's other classes that we do all the time. So my class, The Roots, is one that we do with some consistency. And, uh, the, you know, there's other things that happen all the time, like logic. Like right now, everybody's trying to, you know, learn how to record at home. And as we've moved everything online, as, as everything else in the world is, having really world-class instructors online that you can ask questions to as opposed to like a YouTube tutorial is a really powerful thing. And then there's always genre-specific songwriting classes and there's performance and artist development classes and music business and, mm. and, and whatnot. If I had to name like over the years, some favorites, just really briefly, there's a, there was a class called the Beatles Code and uh, Bill LaFleur, who had been the, the lead uh, transcriber for Hal Leonard Publishing and then has worked for The Voice for many years doing their transcriptions and arrangements, um, basically was charged with correcting the complete scores of the Beatles. And in the course of doing that, he uncovered what he called the Beatles code and built a class around it. It was just mind blowing. And it, it transformed how I understand chromaticism in music. And I'm, I'll, I'll forever be grateful to him. And he's probably sick of getting emails from me because I'm like, Bill, I thought of you today because <laughs> but, you know, that's that, what a great class in any arena does is it reshapes our relationship to an idea to a skill to an experience and and i think mm -hmm. at, at our best that sort of thing happens another one that was really cool this is years ago but it was really special steve Lindsay, the one of the principal people responsible for the development of bruno mars 100 million selling publisher steve Lindsay did a class called who's looking how to get the cuts and basically he ran it just like he runs his writers rooms and we took the warner chapel casting list and broke the class into groups and wrote tactically towards uh, pitches over eight weeks. And he'd bring in, you know, so his guests, Songwriters Hall of Fame member Jeff Barry and David Beerwald, Beerwald and Dylan O'Brien, all these incredible songwriters who've written some of your favorite songs would come in and give feedback and everything. And that was really special. And, and I think um, indicative of the kind of people who do things here, just, you know, he just did that because he felt like he had something to offer the next wave of songwriters. And so he wanted to do that. And, you know, we ran a class like that. So anyway, there's, there's always something that I'm kind of geeked up for, to be honest. You know, one thing that I have seen or heard from some songwriters is uh, many are frustrated with the world of sync licensing mm. and not quite understanding how to um, get their uh, music synced or really how to even write for that world, I think. Because I think that you kind of have to be very strategic about stuff like, you know, something like that. Almost getting it to not sound like it's for sync, but keeping sync in mind. But um, what would you say, you know, might be some advice, some tips you could give for anybody who's frustrated about uh, getting into that world? Yeah. Well, I know you spent some energy uh, in, in that world. And I, and I know you have, mm -hmm. I know you have good ideas on that, but I, I appreciate you asking. I think, I think the first thing that I would say would, would be to 
understand what it is you're trying to do. And if you're really trying to write for sync, then the, the work of reverse engineering songs is, is a, a doable, actionable thing. And you can go about that. So I'll, I'll take a step back before unpacking that. And, and I think mm -hmm. I, the, the biggest mistake, I think, is when we want our music to be all things and do all things. And, and I, I think if you're an artist and you're making an artist project, I think your goal is to have a strong point of view as a writer, as a singer, in the production, in the playing, have a strong point of view and make art and make beautiful art. And you have to understand that some art is magnificently suited for sync. But that's happenstance, that's relationships, that's the nice marriage of this storyline and this show's aesthetic and your style and how those things come together magnificently. And so I don't wanna confuse that within the very tactical work of creating for sync, which like any creative challenge is just a creative challenge. And so I'm not saying you can't make great art doing that, but but I, I don't want to confuse those two. You know what I mean? So a lot of times mm -hmm. an artist yeah. will make a record, I'm really proud of my record and I can't get it synced. That's okay. Um, you know, either maybe it doesn't lend itself to that as easily or, mm -hmm. you know, and because of a bunch of reasons, either because it sounds like a lot of other things or, or um, there isn't the project that so obviously aligns those things. So you know, I, think, I think on a bigger picture level, mm -hmm. kind of want to have that conversation first and, and, mm -hmm. and then you can lean your whole weight into the thing that you choose to actually do. So then if you are writing for sync, I agree with you now, it's almost like the, the supers are too, are too smart now and they know, <laughs> they know when it looks like you just read the brief and aimed, aimed right at it. And, and um, yeah. so, but you still can do the same kind of thing, which is, you know, go to like tunefind.com and places like that where you can track what songs are in what shows. And mm -hmm. I think you, you first have to decide what kind of music can you authentically make and, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, zero in, okay, where is my kind of music getting synced? What songs mm -hmm. are getting synced? How are they being used? And like, like really get into that level of detail and be as granular with understanding the production, with the strategy and the lyric, with, uh, you know, the sonics of it, like everything, like the, how much space are they leaving? Uh, how much musical motivic information is there? You know, you might realize we were talking about the relationship between a poet and, and a lyricist, poetry and, and lyrics. Well, what does a poet want to do? <laughs> Fill the white space with letters, you know, and... What does sync need? Sync needs space so that dialogue can sit front and center. And, and then you start realizing maybe the same song with half of the lyric would be a better fit for a sync scenario. Um, you know, mm. all of the things we teach about showing and not telling as writers can often fight against the sync license because you're, you know, you're, you're, I, I like to talk about songs as being three minute movies. So if I'm playing a three minute movie of a song and I'm trying to sync my movie to your movie, <laughs> unless they line up perfectly, that can be a problem, you know? And then I guess the, 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 the other thing I would just say is that um, r relationships you know, it's a cliche that that knowing people is a big part of it, but but um, it, just spending enthusiastic time in the pursuit of a thing, you you begin to become aware of who the people are who are doing it, and you mm -hmm. have increasing opportunities to have more collegial relationships. In 
you know, making this thing and then just trying to shove it at them, you know, but I made something for you. I had you in mind, (laughs) you know, which I don't know that soups, you know, get a lot of. Showcase their taste-making skills and enhance Mm. this incredible show that they work on or whatever, you know, sort of the faith in that sort of a thing might allow Mm -hmm. you the confidence then to reach out when when you are building those relationships to say, hey, I love this work you're doing on the show. I think I have something that would be a, a fit. Here's a link. Is this an offline conversation? I'd love to hear your take on it as somebody who's been thinking about sync for the last year plus. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think uh, you said fantastic. That's kind of been my thoughts and experience and the whole relationship. I think relationship kind of equals, uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking, yeah, I think relationship equals trust because, mm-hmm. um, you know, if they know you, they can trust that you have been thinking about what they will need. It's not about like your ego and, you know, thinking about it that way. But I do wonder what you think about like sort of this time, uh, you know, with sync, uh, sync songwriting, I'm kind of like at this moment wishing I'd given it more energy and, and given it, you know, just kind of dug into it more because, you know, I put a lot of my eggs in the performance basket and there's no performances. <laughs> so, you know, well, there's, that there's is- There's not a lot of sync yeah. right now either, PS, but, uh, but there will be. Oh, no. Well, there's just a, a lot of production. A lot of newer productions are are on hold. Um, there's there's things happening, right. but not as not as much. Right. But it, but that will change. And, and right know, um, when when somebody's listening to this, you know things are things are shifting daily. But well, one 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 yeah. note I have on that would be um, I love that you did that, and because you're an artist and you're a true artist, and not just your voice, yeah. but your your angle. It's it's a it's such a good thing, and the way you've aligned your writing voice and your singing voice is a really powerful thing and i say then you know g- g- make a separate entity that is your sync entity and call it something different so that you're never confused about what it is that you're trying to do and then it doesn't mean that jamila ford songs can't get synced but if they do it's because that art belonged in this visual art you know um mm-hmm. but but the idea of the the sync project being uniquely different and then let each fortify the other and not feel like, well, I wish I'd spent more time in it. Sort of like, yeah, I was being an artist. And because I'm an artist, I have a strong point of view. So when it comes time to make something in any style, as long as my collaborator can you know, row the boat in the ways that, that, that we need it rowed to, we're going to get yeah. somewhere that we, we really believe in. When I think about the things that I've been a part of, it sinks, the, the majority of them were were songs that we were just making to make the most interesting song. And then sometimes things you would never guess. I, I just love this example, but there's a wonderful artist and a dear friend of mine, Claire Holly. Claire was on Yep Rock Records in North Carolina and lives out here in LA now. And we made a record a number of years ago uh, in, in North Carolina, all all live to two inch analog. Cause she's a great singer and it was really fun. But she had this really quirky, weird song called Waiting for the Whales to Come. And there's nothing about that song that sounds like sync because it's very specific about an old feller who goes on a whale watching trip, you know? And uh, it was just kind of a funny, <laughs> fun throwaway song, not throwaway, but like a fun quirky song of hers on her record. It was really, really fun. And, um, and doggone, there's, a, <laughs> there's like a, an ABC show where the whole first scene is in front of a, an aquarium like a big aquarium with whales and stuff and a music supervisor who'd been a fan of hers and been sitting on that song for years is like, there it goes. 
and that song played almost in its entirety in the opening scene of a show. And there's, you know, there's a moment where you're like, well, that wasn't written for sync. In fact, that's about as anti-sync as it can be until that perfect moment where the relationship is in place and the art in one medium and the art of another medium support one another. And then it becomes this beautiful kind of thing. So, you know, that could either drive you crazy or you just realize, all right, if I'm trying to be the artist, I'm going to make art. And then if I'm going to aim you know, on assignment like this, then I'm going to treat it like an assignment and I'm going to have fun with that and get aggressive with it. And then I'll, then I'll get aggressive with all the, the avenues that might be um, the, the vehicles for that. And then that's, you know, licensing companies, middlemen, agencies, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Let me ask you this. I know you'll have something, no pressure, but I know you'll have something wise and to say about this. Um, <laughs> but I, I'll still love you if you okay. don't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, just with music, it can be such a painful pursuit yeah. for all of us. Uh, and some of us can roll with the pain and keep going and others of us run from mm. it. Mm. What are your sort of thoughts on that? Just kind of caring for ourselves oh, yeah. and, and keeping going, you know? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Well, I, I tell you, I, I really have hesitated to offer any kind of advice in this, in this time, because I don't feel mm. worthy of, of offering advice. But, but I, but as I'm understanding your question, I, I do have an opinion on it in my own mm. life. And I, I, I hope this will, will feel like it's on the mark. I, I think Whatever it is that you love, attend to it, love it with your time and your attention and your intention. And when you do that, it will give you the capacity to kind of turn it in the light so that you can see it anew, especially the thing that you've done for so long. And, you know, sometimes we can, we can be blind to what's magnificent because we've seen it every day. We get bored of the things that come out of our mouths because that's what comes out of our mouths or our fingers on our instruments or whatever it is. But we just might discover something that we might've felt but not known or, or known but not articulated or maybe even articulated but not truly felt. And I, I feel like when we can be, again, back to this whole idea of, of being present, I, I think art is a vehicle that allows us to lean in to something. And, and the, the, the one thing I will say, if anybody's feeling really uninspired in these days, because you're just trying to navigate the day, I'm also a believer that sometimes we need time to process before we can truly respond in a way that, that we trust and we feel meaningful. And so in, so in our classes right now, like just today, my gosh, I heard in a, in a songwriting workshop that we're doing online, I heard five just astonishingly beautiful songs that we're dealing with the moment that we're all in right now, which I'm really inspired by. But I think it's okay to say, you know what, what's happening to me now, I'm going to need to process. And the, the art that I make in response to this might not be art of the moment. It, it, it will be when it's ready to be. But I don't want to turn from my art right now. I don't want to turn from my skills. You know, singers keep singing, players keep playing. And maybe the thing we need to write or that we need to play right now is the reminiscence 
and the remembering who we are and where we were or the looking forward you know i might i might not want to be writing about thinking about the moment that i'm in right now i don't think that's avoidance i i think that's one of the ways that we sort of honor the kind of creative seasons in the life of a creative person that we we only have to look outside at least in places other than southern california to understand winter spring summer and fall here we just you know it's raining now so that's something but we understand yeah. that there's, there's a there's a season for everything and and creatively this doesn't have to be the harvest for everybody right now this might be the turning over the soil for some and if you can just believe that whatever you do to attend to the thing that you love you are attending to the thing that you love and it, and and its fruits will come in their time so i don't know i i don't think that's a permission to just do whatever man i i i, I think it's that <laughs> as creative people this is a time when our creativity is demanded of us for ourselves and for one another but but those ways aren't always obvious and some will take the lead right now and and some will come behind but we all have to find our our place in that because that's our charge that that was the contract we signed when we decided we were going to be people who create things we're we're going to be attentive to moments and when the moment is passed and everyone has moved through it we assemble what came of that and we shape that into a song and we play it back we sing it back you know mm. yeah i i i had a conversation with some singers uh um a couple of weeks ago uh when this was all sort of you know going down it was on an eve a saturday night when uh most of us would have been gigging <laughs> uh we were all talking <laughs> we're all talking on zoom right, right. <laughs> And one of, you know, a few people were like, gosh, you know, all of these people are getting on social media and performing and I don't know, and, and do, putting on little concerts, not little concerts, but, you know, putting on concerts and, and doing things like that. And there was just, and some people were just like, I just, I, I feel pressure yeah, or yeah. I just don't feel like doing any of this. Yeah. I, I feel bad that I don't feel like doing any of it. I, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of an odd thing for us all to be going through, you know, especially, you know, when we're all having this conversation on night where we should have been getting paid, now we're not getting <laughs> paid or whatever. But, um, well, I love that you say that anyway, but because I think it just gives us um, a chance, you know, an opportunity to lean into what is happening and not, you know, really uh, be so resistant of it because it, yeah. it is happening and you know, we're ordered to stay at home and the shows are canceled, but people are finding creative ways of, you know, putting on shows anyway, if that's what they would like to do. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. And, and and I think that feeling of like, you know, maybe maybe my job now is if, if I'm that friend who is not feeling like doing all those things, it, it won't yeah. feel authentic. And so maybe my job is just to support like hell, the people I love, the artists I, I know and love and the artists that I just love, you know? And, and that'll be, maybe that's my job now, but what I'm doing privately is all these other things and the fruits of that will yeah. come when they, when they come. I, 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 I just, I don't know. I, I just think that the, I, I, I heard it, change gears for a second, but I heard an analogy. I just thought was really wonderful. The BJ Novak, the comedian and writer, it was on the office. He just, he said this phrase in an interview that I just thought was amazing. Cause I, I had to raise my hand guilty he talked about what he called the artist's accountant. 
and it doesn't mean your actual account. What he means is that that part of your brain that has to rationalize everything you do in terms of whether it advanced your career, advanced you creatively or whatever, you know, so that's that sort of like, well, I did go to the movies today, but I could write about that and blah, blah, blah. You know, like how, as if you have to somehow <laughs> rationalize so that the ledger line works out that it proves, oh, today you were an artist, congratulations. And I think some of us carry the, the sort of burden of that. And when we do that, we lose sight of the opportunities. We, lo we lose sight of, of, the, of the, the joy that's built into the work. And, and I think right now, if you, if you aren't feeling all those things, man, just, just like take care of this vessel because we're going we're gonna to count on that vessel. We're going to need her back on stage before too long. And, you know, maybe, maybe your job is just to, you know, sur survive intact in whole and so you're yeah. ready to be that expressive brave bold person when you get back on stage you know that I, mm. I i think if we're if my god if we're all online doing some kind of concert nobody's watching we're too busy being online for each other let's we can be an audience <laughs> to each other too i don't think that's i don't think that's avoiding i think that's that's being yeah. being part of the conversation where you take in the other person and not just open your mouth definitely i love that um you know and also we can I can make more shows yes, than I've been able to. I can actually watch my friends <laughs> perform. But, well, this has been really awesome. You know, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm so glad that, uh, you know, we finally had the time to link up and talk. And yours is a voice that I've, you know, wanted uh, my audience to hear for a long time. So I'm, I'm happy that finally got to happen. Thank you. I, I, I'm so proud of you for all the work that you're doing and the, the way that you're building a, a, a virtual community of, of singers and creative people and the way that you're pushing yourself as an, as an artist and as a, as a writer. And, and I, when, when I think about, you were asking about the, the forming of the Sarni school, when, when Ashley and I were first imagining the songwriting school, I, what we couldn't have imagined was how amazing the people would be and how proud we would be to be associated with those people from, from the people who've taken classes to the people who've taught to the people who've guested. Uh, I'm, I'm so proud. I'm, I'm proud to be associated with you in this way. And I really Aww. appreciate you asking me. And it's hilarious for me at, at, you know, with all the incredible singers you've had on your show to be on a show about singing. So that makes in all the good ways. So thanks for that too. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Where can we find you online? You know, I would say, I would just direct people to the songwriting school for now, the songwriting school.com, yes. the songwriting school.com, because we are the songwriting school. And then we're, you know, Instagram, the songwriting school and uh, song school on Twitter. And, um, and there's, you know, feel free to reach out and uh, there's a contact form and, you know, put my name in it and I, I will be a person who gets back. Sweet. Wonderful. Thank you. Again. Thank you so much. Great. All right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I most certainly did. Here are the singing lessons. Number one, the critic is that part of us that has experienced expertise in the world and may have been a part of accomplishing that expertise herself. Number two, if we can get the critic out of the way for a little while and just teach it how to spot the interesting things, the artist is going to get busy generating all kinds of stuff. Some of it interesting, some of it won't be. And the critic just gets practice spotting the things that interest us. Number three, if the critic can become diagnostic, then suddenly it's constructive. Number four, we're wired to do amazing things. 
to look at situations and respond with something unique. That's our fundamental state. Number five, what a songwriter has to learn to do is take things away so that the space remains. And in the space, we get to feel the thing that the line is trying to say. Number six, words will come, and they may not even be the words you settle on. They may not be the best words in their best order yet, but they'll be words, and then your craft gives you the facility to examine the truth of whatever comes out. Number seven, in a co-write, you bring what you have, you bring what you are, you open yourself to the other person or people, and then you try to find the strongest ideas and give them a fighting chance of making a difference. Number eight, Whatever you perceive to be your shortcomings and limitations are invitations for somebody else to uniquely enter your creative space and contribute their thing. When you operate that way, you quit apologizing for what you aren't. Then you just come with an enthusiasm for who and what you are and who and what they are, and then see how that works together. Number nine, your job in the co-write is to be the best listener in the room. And if you're the best listener in the room, you're in the business of handing the other person back their genius. When you proceed with that kind of presence, you put everyone in the room in a state where they feel the permission to be bold and the faith that something just might come of this that could be transformative. Number 10, we're all seeking connection. Sometimes it's to our purpose. Sometimes it's to our voice, whether we're singers or writers. It's all to something that matters. Number 11, community is where authentic relationships begin and are maintained. Number 12, what a great class in any arena does is it reshapes our relationship to an idea, to a skill, to an experience. Number 13, whatever it is that you love, attend to it. Love it with your time and your attention and intention. And when you do that, it will give you the capacity to turn it in the light so that you can see it anew. We just might discover something that we might have felt but not known and known but not articulated or maybe even articulated but not truly felt. Oh my God, you guys, this is such good stuff. And I want to thank Rob once again for coming on the show. So wonderful. And I want to say once again that classes uh, for the songwriting school are available online, fully interactive um, during the pandemic. The songwritingschool.com is where you can find everything. So do visit, see if there is something that tickles your fancy. Um, it's just a wonderful community. That's all I can say. I learned so much. I definitely have a better relationship with my critic. Um, I don't get that kind of writer's block anymore where I, I get it, but I, I, I don't have that sort of violent relationship with trying to write a song, if that makes sense. Um, it's a, it's a wholly different experience and I really transformed in this environment. And I am just very, very grateful to Rob and the students and all of the other teachers there who I have been lucky enough to have come into contact with. So thank you again. And guys, um, you can find all of the links that we mentioned in the show notes at the working singer Um, I also put together a singer resource page on the working singer and I update it pretty frequently, um, when I find something or someone who is useful to all of us singers. So visit the page soon. The songwriting is also linked there and join the Facebook group. Visit Facebook, type in the Working Singer Podcast community, answer the questions, and I will let you in. 
You can also follow myself and the podcast at Instagram or on Facebook or at Twitter. The handles are at Jamila Ford Music or at The Working Singer Podcast. Also got a website, jamilaford.com. And if you have a guest you'd like me to consider or a subject you'd like to hear covered, please contact me at hi at theworkingsingerpodcast.com. That's H-I at theworkingsingerpodcast.com. Or if you just want to say hello and talk about some things that you're concerned about. I always love to hear from you. And that is it for this week, you guys. I truly mean it when I say that I do love you. I do appreciate you and everything that you are and, and how earnest everybody is. And I see you online and I've seen many people in Zoom calls um, for the various uh, being part of the various singer communities and just human communities that we are all a part of. And, you know, we're getting through this and we will get through this. And I hope that you know, this uh, podcast is a step in doing that. So as always, do love you. I do appreciate you. And I will talk to you again soon. Take care. Bye.